0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you all. We're continuing this afternoon our studies in the book of Genesis. And uh, I've been concerned this week that this afternoon will feel to you uh, like a bit of an anticlimax. Last week, we experienced the powerful emotional reunion of Jacob and his broken Uh, of of Joseph and his brothers, Jacob's broken family, being reunited in Egypt. And I know, you don't know this, but I know that next week, Luke is going to begin to lead us through some of the important lessons that the narrator of Genesis wants us to learn from all of this. So as I've been preparing to speak to you on this next session uh, for this week, I, I was concerned that my talk might feel a little bit like I'm just holding the door open for Luke. and keeping the seat warm for him uh, for next week. The reason is that this next section feels at first, I think, like a little bit of boring admin. Um, There are loose ends being tied up here. There are lists of people and places. Even the long-awaited meeting of Joseph and Jacob, his father, after 20 years, is described in just one verse. In chapter 46 and verse 29, just one verse. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. That's it. And then there's 32 verses where Joseph goes into project manager mode, Excel spreadsheet mode, diplomat mode, first of all to deal with Pharaoh to relocate his family in Egypt, and then to manage the famine that's going on in the whole region. To me at first, this section didn't seem to have the same emotional punch that last week had or that other parts of the story seem to have. So I've been praying a lot this week, and um, one, you, you know this, when, when we come to, to preach and to teach from the Bible, we're often praying. I've been praying this week that the Lord would teach me so that I've got something then from him to give to you, to encourage you, and to challenge you, and to feed your hearts. As a result, what I'd like us to do this afternoon is, in this next section, is to really focus on Jacob as an individual, and in particular, I want us to try and learn something about what it means to live the life of faith, and um, so, anyway, let me introduce, I was doing a crossword recently, and there was a five-letter clue, do you like crosswords? Here it is, one across, two face God, five letters, any takers? Five letters, two-faced God. Oh, very good. Very good. This is the answer, Janus. That's amazing. I'd never heard of him. I had to look it up to finish the crossword. It was the last clue that I didn't know. And um, I I looked him up, and what I found was very interesting. Janus was a Roman God, and he was depicted as being two-faced, not in a two-faced kind of way, but rather more the idea of looking backwards and looking forwards at the same time. Janus was considered by the Romans to be the god of the doorway. Perhaps that's the reason why our month of January is named, apparently, after this god, I suppose we see January, you could see January as the gateway to the new year. Looking back, looking forward, it kind of makes sense. Some writers saw this god Janus as the god of progress and change. And that was in the sense that when when he's looking back, he's looking back at a more savage, lawless time, but looking forward much more optimistically to a time of more harmonious, peaceful times. So I I suppose there's a little bit of a political element for the Romans in that that the past was bad and the future is going to be great. This is what we're in the middle of an election. So maybe maybe politicians would be uh, trying to articulate that idea. I think this idea sums up where Jacob is at this point in the story. By now, Jacob is an old, uh, 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 quite an old man who is looking back over his past sometimes painful experiences, and yet looking forward and trying to make sense of what God is still going to do in his life. I I think you would agree with me as we've gone through Genesis that Jacob's life has been very difficult. But there are two further traumas in this section. The first is that he realizes after 20-odd years that the son, Joseph, that he thought was dead is actually alive. That's pretty traumatic. And the second trauma is this massive decision to relocate his whole family as a result from Canaan to go en masse, lock, stock and barrel to live in Egypt. I think for Jacob, this section that we're going to look at is one of those crossroads moments in life. And I think it will be helpful for us to just reflect a little about what real faith looks like. I've got three points today, but first of all, let me just say this by way of introduction. I've I've picked, I'm introducing Janice to you for another reason here, and, and it's this. There are people who argue that all of the gods of whatever kind of religion you can think of, are basically dreamt up by human beings and are therefore a figment of our imagination. A god like Janus here is possibly a good example of this as it nicely fits one aspect of our human experience, looking back, looking forward. Janus is even depicted as a human So this is the common idea that religion is really man's struggle to find meaning and significance in his existence. One writer said this, skeptics insist that God has been manufactured by human ingenuity to meet human inadequacy. Let me read that again. Skeptics insist that God has been manufactured by human ingenuity to meet human inadequacy. I want to suggest this afternoon that the Bible contradicts that assumption and shows us that we did not invent God. In fact, he is the one who created us. He is the one from whom all other reality, in fact, comes. And without him, nothing else actually makes any real sense at all. And I want to suggest that this means that we can only really truly understand ourselves properly, when we stop trying to imagine gods and make gods and create gods in our own image and discover the God who really is God. The writer who made that quote goes on to say, when human beings accept the fact that they must look to God's revelation of himself if they desire to find the secrets of their own humanity, they discover that the God who is is a God of surprises. I love that idea that God is surprising. I think Jacob knew that. As Jacob here looks back and looks forward, I don't think Jacob here is simply inventing a God who can fit the facts of his experience and life. I think actually Jacob is responding in faith to the God who is often doing the opposite of what he expected him to do. Jacob here isn't projecting his needs onto some imagined God, but actually learning in his life to trust the one true living God. So, I only have three simple observations to make about Jacob as we just walk through this part of the narrative. And I want to frame them in such a way that it will give you something concrete to go away and do. And uh, so let me give you all three right at the start. The titles could have been better, but I think I think you'll get the, the point. Here we go, living a life of faith. Here, here, three points. Number one, when faith burns low, focus on the evidence. Point number two will be, when crisis comes, be reassured by God's promises. And the last point is, to make sense of life, adopt the posture of a pilgrim. Three things to learn from Jacob's life. And then we're done. Let's, you don't need to write them all down now because they'll stay on the screen. We'll just deal with number one. Well, the second two will fade a bit. <laughs> but they'll come back. Point number one. When faith burns low, focus on the evidence. Just turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 45. It's on page 51 in the red church Bibles there. Uh, Genesis 45. We ended last week, as if if you were here, you'll know this, with Joseph being reunited with his brothers in Egypt. But Jacob, the dad, is back in Canaan. And Joseph's desire is very simple. In verse 13 of chapter 45, Joseph says... Bring my father down here quickly. He hasn't seen him for over 20 years. Go back to Canaan and bring my dad back down here. And do it quick. Do it now. Let's pick up the story by reading from verse 25. So they, that is the brothers went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I want you to notice the end of verse 26, particularly, Jacob was stunned and he didn't believe them. In many ways, it's understandable, isn't it? These are the same sons who had shown Jacob Joseph's blood stained coat 20 years ago. Now they're telling him that Joseph is alive. And when he hears this news, he is numb with disbelief. The Hebrew here apparently says, his heart became weak. I think in English would say, this news nearly gave him a heart attack. He's numb, he's stunned. And I think there are at least two reasons why Jacob would draw this conclusion. And I'm sure you'll agree. Number one, firstly, he's believed the opposite of this for over 20 years. All he knew was that his beloved son had been mauled to death by a wild animal. He had seen the court. And in two decades, nothing had happened or been said to change his mind. Ruler of Egypt, ha! It must be someone who looks like him. You can't have got this right. There's no way it could be him. If Joseph were, if Joseph were alive, Jacob's thinking, surely, There would have been a rumour or something. He would have tried to get in touch. There would have been a message. If this news is true, everything I've ever known is completely false. Secondly, I think this is one of those times when the news seems also too good to be true. Don't you find it interesting in life how much easier we find it to believe bad news than we do good news. When they told him that Joseph had been killed, he drank that news in straight away. When they come now and tell him that Joseph's alive, he's stunned. I don't want to be uh, guilty of over-spiritualizing this part of the narrative, but I can't help thinking that this little experience here of Jacob and this news being brought to him, there are parallels here to those times when people hear the good news about Jesus. Sometimes when we're sharing our faith with someone who's maybe not a Christian, The fact that that person has lived so long without believing becomes an obstacle to them believing in Jesus now. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, why did I not believe it before now? Why do so many other people not believe him? Too much time has passed for me. It's almost as if the passage of time causes long-held opinions to set in concrete as irreversible truths. But also, is it not the case that often secretly we think that the gospel itself is too easy? It's too good to be true. Sometimes I wonder, you know, that if we preached a gospel that said, do this or do that or do the other, it actually might be more attractive because we want to feel that it's hard and difficult. We want to feel like we can do something. But when the preacher says, come and trust in Jesus Christ, who died to bear all your sins, he loves you, he will forgive you, He will welcome you and adopt you into the family of God forever and in our hearts we go, nah, that's too easy. It's too good to be true. Surely there's a catch or a snack. Maybe you too hear the truth about Jesus and like Jacob, you are numb with disbelief and you're saying in your heart, I can't believe it's been too long and it seems too good to be true. Jacob's response here to this news about Joseph reminds me a little anyway of the women who went to the tomb of Jesus and he wasn't there because he'd risen from the dead And the women go and they tell the disciples. And in Luke's gospel, it says that the men did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. What was it then that persuaded Jacob? Just look with me at verse 27 because there are two things there that the brothers did. It says in verse 27, When they told Jacob everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, that the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Jacob's hope was revived by the sheer weight of evidence that the brothers told him and showed him. I think Jacob here is like one of those old-fashioned, like, I don't know, I remember my granddad maybe having one, like those old-fashioned lamps that are full of oil with a little wick. Or like a little candle, if you're not as old as my granddad. And the, the flame is almost on the cusp of going out. And as the brothers show him this evidence, the text says, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. What a picture that is. It's like this little, dying, weak flame of faith that had almost gone out is fanned back up into life. One writer says, this old grey beard, all stooped and bent, suddenly takes on new vigour and heart. This old man, practically on the point of expiring from disappointment, learns that Joseph was alive and was in charge of Egypt. From being old, he became young. He put aside the cloud of disappointment. He repelled the storm in his mind and found himself at peace. Jacob is a new man. Woken up, rekindled, re-energized, invigorated. I hope the parallels here are obvious to you. Do you feel like your faith is sometimes about to be blown out? Maybe it's never been lit. Maybe the passage of time has hardened your heart. Maybe you can't allow yourself to believe the truth about Jesus because it seems too good to be true for you. Jacob's sons must have said, Dad, Dad, stop being sad and open your eyes. Look at the evidence. It's true. He's alive. And in the end, Jacob says, enough. I've seen enough. I've heard enough. I'm convinced he's alive. Let me go and find my coat." Let's go. When faith burns low, what we need to do is focus on the evidence that will cause our faith to be fanned back up into flame. And you have better evidence. This is a story here. You have better evidence than a bunch of Egyptian carts outside on Talbot Lane or wherever the road's called. You have the witness... Of those first disciples, shocked disciples, whose dreams were shattered, who never thought for one second that Jesus would rise back from the dead. Far from inventing a God, the actual real God showed up and surprised them beyond their wildest dreams. And this same risen Jesus then told them to go and tell the world that he had come in love to save people from their sins and give them life. You have the evidence. Let me just try and illustrate one aspect of this. Um, It's a daft illustration, but do with it what you will. Think of your life like a train. What would be the engine that drives the train of your life along its track? For many people, the engine that drives their life is their feelings, and the facts are packed away in a little box in one of the carriages behind. The feelings are the engine, and the facts follow the feelings. You get that? What needs to happen often in our lives is that that needs to swap out. We need to make sure that the engine that is driving our life is the facts and the feelings are in the carriage behind being told. This means that you and I have to be intentional in focusing on the evidence. This means talking to yourself, reminding yourself of the truths that you know. The thing that makes you a Christian is not whether you feel like it. The thing that makes you a Christian is what Christ has done. And what Christ has done is still true even on your worst days. I hope, if your faith is burning low today, or maybe never even been lit at all, that today it would catch fire and be fanned back into flame. Our second, uh, when faith burns low, focus on the evidence. Second point from Jacob's life: when crisis comes, be reassured by God's promises. So we're going into chapter 46 now. Despite me thinking at first that this passage sounded like boring admin, this next scene is actually very interesting when you dig into it a bit more. So come with me i will have a little look. Jacob's immediate reaction to this news is to set out and go to his beloved Joseph in Egypt. He does so. But he gets to a place called Beersheba and stops. I, I, I don't know if you ever saw Wacky Races when you were a kid, but the picture here is of Jacob jumping into his sports car and heading off like down the M1 at like 120 miles an hour, and then suddenly, inexplicably, slamming the brakes on and screeching to a halt. Why? First of all, Beersheba is the furthest place south on the way to Egypt. Past this point is only desert. And then Egypt beyond that. And it, excuse me. <clears throat> In fact, later on, when people described the land of Israel, do you know what they would talk about? They would say, from Dan to Beersheba. Like we would say, from John O'Groats to land's end. Beersheba was like the last stop. When when we went to visit our Ben in Switzerland over the Easter holiday, he took us to an amazing place called Crudevan. And apparently this place was formed by a crater. And it is just the most, it's like a massive semicircular cliff, sheer cliff drop. Going, going round in a circle like this, and there's no railings on the top, and you can literally go. I, I couldn't go to the edge because it made me feel too wobbly. Um, it's a cliff face. And I, th- this here, I think, is Jacob. Beersheba here is his cliff edge. This is the point of no return, and as he races down to Egypt, Joseph, his beloved son, is ahead of him, but he senses something's wrong and he slams the brakes on and he stops. Earlier on, in this narrative in chapter 35, God had confirmed a promise to Jacob that he'd already given to Abraham and Isaac. And this is what God said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation will come from you and kings will come from your body and the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you and I will give this land to your descendants after you. So at this point, it's almost as if his love for Joseph and the circumstances of the famine are pulling him down towards Egypt. But if he goes there, it seems like he's traveling away from the land that God has promised him and his descendants and his grandfather and his dad before that. Jacob is excited about Joseph, but confused about the promise. This is a moment of crisis in his life. So the brakes come on, and he stops. Let's just read chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel, that's another name for Jacob, set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. In other words, Jacob, in his moment of crisis, lifts his heart to God. He prays. He worships. Maybe on this day, he's asking God, what should I do? You've promised me this land. It seems like you're leading me to this land. He's looking back. He's looking forward. But he's also looking up to God. And in verse 2, We hear God's voice for the first time in a long time. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Right at this moment of crisis, as Jacob reaches out to God, God comes to meet him. And how gracious God is towards him. It gives us a big clue, doesn't it, to Jacob's frame of mind. Do not be afraid, Jacob, to go to Egypt. God gives him four specific promises. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll go with you. I'll bring you back. And you will die in peace in the arms of your beloved son, Joseph Joseph. There's a few things I love about this, but we've only got time for me to highlight two. So let's just think about two things. First of all, I want you to notice that the highest promise God can make is to say, I am with you. Isn't it? This is the most important thing Jacob needed to know. Not that everything would be okay, necessarily, God isn't promising a painless life for Jacob, but what he is saying is, I will be with you every single step of the way. Remember when he ran away from home and did that 1,000 mile round trip to Paddan and his uncle Laban up in the north? God said the same thing then, didn't it? Bethel, I'll go with you and I'll bring you back. Now, he's going in the opposite direction. A thousand mile road trip to Egypt. And God says to him, I'll go with you and I'll bring you back. There have been days and there will be days when he didn't feel like God was with him. There would be days to come where he would wonder, what is going on? But even on his worst days, he could rely on this promise. God is with me secondly I do love the combination here in God's words to Jacob of the big and the small God basically says to Jacob listen Jacob I have the big plan in my hands I'm making a new nation But I also have you personally in my hands too. What a tender comment for God to make to Jacob. Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. In other words, God is both strategic and intimate. God has the long game in view, but he loves Jacob personally. God is working out a cosmic plan. But Jacob isn't some kind of irrelevant pawn in that scheme. God knows him by name. He knows his life, his fears, his weaknesses, his hopes. Jacob is reminded here on the edge of a cliff in Beersheba, that he can look back with thankfulness and look forward with hope because God has both the big picture and him in his hands. It's there even in the way God uses his name. God calls him Jacob as a reminder of what he had been. And he calls him Israel, which is a reminder of what he's going to become because of God's grace. One of the most surprising things about God, one writer says, is that he who creates on such a vast and complex scale desires to communicate with his children on such a personal and intimate level. It strikes me that God makes this very same point over and over again down the years of history with his people I can do the big and I love you Let's, um, let's go to one such place in the Bible keep your finger in Genesis but let's go to the book of Isaiah chapter 40 page 726 if you're following on in the church bibles in this chapter God is speaking words of comfort this is over a thousand years later let me read to you these amazing eloquent words oh man I'd love to read it all We haven't got time, but let's break in at verse 25. This is the Lord speaking to his people. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one. And calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And then God says to his people, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? They will run and not grow, grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What is God saying to his people over a thousand years later? He saying to them, "I know every individual star in the universe by name. can I not look after you? He can do the big and he can do the intimate. In Genesis, Jacob has had 11 chapters of human ups and downs, every kind of crisis and failure and trauma. And then God speaks here and says no more than 50 words and calmness descends. And Jacob can go forward with God at his side in sweet confidence. When crisis comes, be reassured by God's promises. Before we um, deal with point three, let me just digress for one moment. We're focused on Jacob here, but I just want to stand back and see the big picture here. In chapter 46, we won't read it. But you'll see as you skim down that page that Jacob packs his whole family, all of their stuff. They leave Canaan behind. The narrator gives us a full list of all Jacob's descendants. He's at great pains to arrive somehow at the symbolic number of 70. The point here is completeness. The significance of the number 70 is a symbolic idea. This is Jacob's whole family. The whole family has moved lock, stock, and barrel to Egypt. From God's perspective, Egypt is like a little crib. And he's going to deposit his people there so that like a little baby they can grow. There's wisdom here. If this family had stayed in Canaan, it is entirely possible that they would have lost their identity And been absorbed into the Canaanite culture. But the Egyptians don't want anything to do with them. Joseph tells his brothers, when you meet Pharaoh, and he says to you, what job do you do? Tell him that you're shepherds, because the Egyptians hate shepherds. And he'll let you live in Goshen, the best part of the land. And so they do. They actually go further than that. They're a bit too chatty, and they say, yes, we're farmers. Please let us live in Goshen. Joseph must have been going, don't say that. But anyway, Pharaoh agrees for them to live in the best part of the land. So this kind of separation, the Egyptians don't really like them. They're doing it because Pharaoh loves Joseph. But it's like a little cradle for this fledgling family to grow, by God's grace, into a nation this is the surprising plan of god so we've seen jacob's hope rekindled by the evidence we've seen his doubts and his uncertainty in a crisis reassured by god's promises very quickly and finally one final observation to make sense of life adopt the posture of a pilgrim jacob is brought to uh, brought in by joseph and presented to Pharaoh. In chapter 47 and verse 7, if you're with me there, Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And after Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? It's a good job he wasn't a woman, isn't he? <laughs> Should never ask a woman all shit Jacob how old are you and Jacob said to Pharaoh the years of my pilgrimage are 130 my years have been few and difficult and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers Joseph brings his dad to his boss Effectively. And Pharaoh asks Jacob, oh, And Jacob gives this most unusual reply The years of my pilgrimage have been short and hard. And when we stop and think, this is Jacob looking back now. He ran away from home after deceiving his blind old dad, Isaac, to obtain the blessing. He then gets tricked by his uncle Laban, ends up marrying two women and taking on their maids. His family life was fractured by jealousy and favoritism. His daughter is later raped and two of his sons respond with disproportionate violence. The same sons then sell Joseph as a slave. And for 20 years, Jacob believes his favorite son's been killed. After unhappy marriages, he then loses the wife he really loves in childbirth. It's no wonder here, is it, that Jacob says to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage have been short and difficult. But later on in this passage, we also find Jacob looking forward. There's a very unusual passage just at the end of chapter 47 Let's, uh, let's read the end of chapter 47 from verse 27. Now, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there. They were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. That's interesting, isn't it? How old was Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery? Can you remember? 17. When Jacob comes to Egypt, he has 17 years with him at the end of his life. It's amazing the parallel there. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you'll show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshipped as he leant on the top of his staff. It's a very unusual passage that, Before he dies, he asked Joseph to swear that he'll bring him back to the land of promise. And this idea of Joseph putting his hand under his thigh, I was checking this out and there are two views on this. Some rabbis, Jewish rabbis, believe that putting the hand under the thighs, letting someone sit on your hand is a sign of submission to authority. But the other more broadly held view is that this phrase is a euphemism for the male genitals. Generally, when oaths are made, the person holds on to something sacred or precious while they swear. And in some ancient cultures, that sacred something would be the testicles. And Jacob, it seems, is asking Joseph to swear in such a way here. This is a euphemism. I'm, I'm glad that we now just kind of shake hands on a deal. Um, but this this is a profound moment, isn't it? Swear, son. <laughs> okay, dad. I, I promise. He's not going to forget this moment, is he? Listen. The point of all this is that, despite his painful memories, Jacob is still looking forward. And he is very conscious here, as an old man, of the promise of God, of land and descendants and a future. So, why do I use the word pilgrim? The idea of being a pilgrim is often used to describe a religious journey to some sacred place. But there's another way to think of being a pilgrim. I think here it's the idea that life itself is a journey. When I was a child, some of you might know this. When I was a child, I can remember vaguely folks singing a song that went something like this. I don't even know the tune. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That is the language of a pilgrim. I do live here, but this isn't my real home. I'm actually just passing through this home my real home is somewhere else. This is why we read earlier from the book of Hebrews and these men, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they all adopted this posture of a pilgrim. They were living as aliens, foreigners, strangers on the earth. They did live in this country, but they were inwardly longing and yearning for a better heavenly country. They weren't dreaming They weren't escapists. Jacob knew that his life here was real, but he also knew that his life here wasn't all that there was to it. In his heart, he knew a deep longing, a yearning for something better, something lasting, something that wasn't broken or painful. He didn't see it fully, clearly then. But he was trusting God with his ultimate future. I've tried to make these three observations about Jacob in this way to demonstrate what it looks like to live a life of faith. The call here is to respond to this God with a personal faith of your own. That means turning from trusting ourselves and trying to make God in our own image and coming to entrust our whole selves to this surprising God. God. That image of Janus that we looked at at the beginning ironically sums up what Christian faith should look like. We look back with the eye of faith to Jesus, our Savior, who died for our sins and rose again from the dead to inaugurate his eternal kingdom. But we also look forward with the eye of faith to the great future hope that we have of him coming again in glory and power to finally judge all evil and to, br- to make all things new, to wipe away every tear of his believing people and to bring in a new era. You have the solid evidence of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have the rich promises of God to rely upon in all the days of your lives. And you also know, like Jacob knew, that this life is not all that there is. And that should free you to not hold on to things too tightly, but to live life here as a pilgrim, pilgrim, bearing patiently all the things that God chooses to bring into your life while looking forward to the glory that he's still to come. Maybe right now in your own life, maybe your faith burns low, or maybe you're at a Beersheba moment, standing on the cliff, right on the edge like Jacob was. This afternoon, hear the call of God's word here, and come and commit yourself to him in obedient faith as Jacob did. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the encouragement, the comfort, and the challenge that it brings. Father, I thank you for even passages like this one that at first glance seem so devoid of uh, excitement or emotion. Father, we pray that as we think about Jacob, I pray that your word would come to us with power and that you would encourage us in our hearts to turn from ourselves and to trust in Jesus, to trust in you. We pray in the powerful and good name of your son, our saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.